What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with Dan Favalli and Andy Bailey, and we are moving on in our season previews to the Central Division in the Eastern Conference. It's the home of the defending champion Cleveland Cavaliers, which still feels pretty weird to say. It's also got the Chicago Bulls, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Indiana Pacers, and the Detroit Pistons. Unlike the Atlantic Division, which you can go back and listen to if you so desire, this one seems a little bit more jumbled up. Uh, we have not predetermined these rankings here. So this is going to happen pretty organically, starting at the bottom, finishing at the top. And we're going to turn it over to Andy to see who he has at number five in the central. Okay. So I'm going <laughs> to, I think fifth is the only one that I feel confident or like semi-confident about with this division. Um, I think the other, well, the Cavaliers obviously are, I mean, we know what they are. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port end of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. They're not Spoilers much? <laughs> they're not going to win this division. They're just they're also going to win the conference unless a catastrophe happens. Um, three other teams, I think their baseline is like they're going to be decent to pretty good and, and maybe a little better than that. And then there's one team that I think could be bad. They could also be okay, but that's the Bulls. <laughs> So that's that's who I have fifth. I think they're the one team that things could just go really wrong, and and they're the only one I can see. I mean, more likely than the others finishing fifth. Any Adam, qualms what do you with have to that? Say about that, I agree. Um, I, I think the the Bulls and the Bucks are pretty close in my mind, but I, I'm going with the upside in Milwaukee to get to at least number four here. I do not like the roster construction in Chicago whatsoever. I'm really worried about the complete lack of shooting. I mean, if the starting lineup is as we expect, Rajon Rondo, Dwayne Wade, Jimmy Butler, 
maybe Taj Gibson and Robin Lopez. Your best shooter is Jimmy Butler, who can't really space the court out that well. There's, it's going to be a jumbled mess on the interior. There isn't enough scoring. And you have in the, in the backcourt now, Rondo and Wade, two guys with defensive reputations from their prime who really haven't played that much defense in the last couple of years. So there's a lot that worries me about this team. They absolutely have to start Miritich at the four, right? I don't think I don't think you can get away with Gibson there. I think you have to, but I don't know if they're going to. Because then, like you said, if you do start Gibson, um, which I don't think is outside the realm of possibility, but then you literally have zero shooting. And Miritich, at least, um, what did he shoot from three last year? I know it was up from his rookie season, but I mean, defenders at least have to respect him out there. But Dan, I, you look like you disagree. Here. I agree with everything else you said, but in, like, yeah, go ahead, Dan. So, are are you are we day drinking now on the Hardwood Knox podcast? I'm not high on the Bulls by any means, but to say that they're going to be worse than the Bucks to me makes no sense. You're kind of believing that everything is going to go wrong in Chicago. I get that they don't have enough shooters. But their defense could still end up being better than Milwaukee's if the Bucks are going to play Jabari Parker and Greg Monroe together a lot. There's nothing to suggest, really, that the Bucks are going to give John Henson or Miles Plumlee a real chance to steal a lion's share of the minutes at that five spot. And Milwaukee doesn't have a lot of shooters just yet. If you look at their primary playmaker in Giannis Antetokounmpo, He's still not a good shooter. You have Middleton. You have Mertzatella Titovic or something. <laughs> Matthew Delavitova. That works. I can't say it. Teletovic. Teletovic, excuse me. Um, my speech impediment is catching up oh, with me. Oh, you're fine. I like that. Um, <laughs> we Teletovic. should go with that from now on. Teletovic. How about Mirza Tubby? I like I, it. I thought that's where it was headed. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm really just not understanding picking the Bulls for last place in the division. There are some issues there with the Rondo-Dwayne Wade combination. Uh, Jimmy Butler's used to having his, the ball in his hands as well, but two of those guys are probably going to work pretty well together, and the other one will just have to suck it up and not play as many minutes. I, I just don't see, without the Bucks trading Greg Monroe and giving all the minutes up front to Henson and Plumlee and hoping one of them makes a leap. I don't see how they're better than the Bulls. Here's my counter to all that. Um, So Jason Kidd showed a willingness to bring Monroe off the bench for a little bit last season, and he did it with Michael Carter-Williams too. Like Michael Carter-Williams started coming off the bench a little bit before he got hurt. And once he did get hurt, I actually just looked this stuff up before the podcast. So post-Michael Carter-Williams injury – uh, Ana Kumpo, Middleton, and Jabari all averaged about 19 points. Um, the rest of Giannis's numbers are crazy. Eight rebounds, seven assists. They all shot around 50% from the field. And that three-man lineup was plus 3.6 uh, per 100 possessions. That three-man lineup before the injury was minus 1.4. So what I'm getting at is if Jason Kidd is willing to bring – like build a bench unit around Michael Carter-Williams and Greg Monroe and try and – Play that big three, Anadokounmpo, Middleton, and Parker together as much as possible and just sort of supplement what they do with a shooter like Della Vadova, maybe a rim protector like Henson. Um, 
I think they have a chance to have two separate units that are really good. Like I, I understand the problems with Michael Carter Williams and Greg Monroe, but I think those two against other bench units could be really interesting. And and just from a talent alone thing, like Adam said earlier, it's just that upside is hard for me to ignore. Like I, I, this is not something I think will happen, but I would not be surprised to see them challenge for like second in the division, just because I think there's so much talent there. Yeah, I, I think that's what it's all about here. These are both fundamentally flawed teams. I just have more concerns with Chicago's flaws because there isn't the corresponding youth to suddenly make some sort of leap and take that team to the proverbial next level. I mean, we know that Giannis is tracking towards superstardom. That really isn't a debate at this point, I don't think. But you, if you look up and down this roster, it's filled with guys who can contribute right now and get better. I don't think that floor spacing is as much of an issue now that they signed Toledovich. Um, Jabari Parker has another year under his belt. Middleton's a great shooter. Delavadova was a really good spot-up shooter for Cleveland last year. So I, I just don't see as many troublesome spots on this roster, even though it is requiring some of the younger players to get substantially better. That was another it's- post-injury thing with Jabari, too. He, he barely shot threes at all when Carter Williams was playing. Um, he shot him at 35% after the injury. So I think there's... How many threes was that? It was maybe one attempt a game. So, I mean, there's still a ways to go. I'm, I'm not sold on him as a three-point shooter, but I don't think it's crazy to think he'll add that. He's, he's young, and he's got superstar potential. For sure. And when you're looking at the long-term ceilings, you obviously go at the Bucks. but is Jason Kidd going to bench Greg Monroe again? That experiment didn't last through the end of the that's, season. He that's was back a big question for sure. And the other thing is, when Giannis took over at point guard after MCW went down, the Bucks still basically ranked in the bottom third of offensive efficiency, and that's with probably your best player going absolutely bonkers. So, so even if he's able to match that production, is there a guarantee that the Bucks but, are, are that much better off because of it? They were 9-14 and 14 during that stretch, too, to close out the season. Uh, their defense still wasn't great so these problems maybe he he again he helps them from a playmaking perspective but i'm not seeing where this leap is coming from right now with greg monroe in the fold with that jabari parker greg monroe front court in the rotation at all and with sort of the question marks that still exist in the back court so what do you have the, the win ceilings for these two teams at i would say the ceiling for chicago's uh like Mid forties, forty five, and for the Bucks, I'd I'd go a little higher than that because obviously I I have them finishing above the Bulls. So I think the Bucks, their ceiling is probably between the thirty eight and forty one range, five hundred basketball, and the Bulls are a tick better to me. Put them between forty and maybe forty five. Forty five seems a little bit on the higher side. See, I think the Bulls are like forty five ish um, if everything goes right. I think Milwaukee is like 43-44, but I think they're more likely to reach or come close to reaching their ceiling. Where you could see Chicago just falling apart. Yeah, like I don't, I don't I'm I kind disagree of the... with you, Andy, that, that Milwaukee can make the leap all the way up to number two. I don't think that can happen in this expedited a time frame, but I do think that they can make a, a, some substantial improvement this season alone. How many wins did they have last year? 33. Okay. So I could see like a 10-win jump, but I don't, I don't really feel confident Much saying anything more than that. I actually really liked their offseason, too. That was something Dan 
mentioned earlier, they didn't make any splashy moves. Um, but pretty much every guy they lost was negative value over replacement. So they got, got they got rid of guys that hurt them, and then they just brought in solid pieces. Like uh, Toledovich and Delavadova aren't really going to like push them into the next stratosphere, but they're also not going to hurt. They're just rock-solid rotation guys that can support that big three. I loved both of those moves because I thought it was exactly what the team needed. Just yeah, the floor-spacing guys who don't need the ball. Exactly. They, they were perfect additions. I'm just, again, the backcourt worries me, but more so that frontcourt rotation as long as Monroe is there because you're not, maybe you pay him $17.2 million or $17.1 million to sit on the bench, but he's still going to probably get 20 to 25, 30 minutes a game, and that's too much for this roster. He can help in a very specific situation, but Milwaukee, as last season showed, just isn't it. Did you say 30 guess- to 35 minutes? I said 20, 25, 30 minutes. okay. That makes more sense. I guess the way I'm looking at it is Chicago finished nine games ahead last year. I'm not convinced they got any better during the offseason. I'm a little bit worried they might not reach 42 wins again. Same here. And with Milwaukee, I think the roster itself got better with the additions of Delavadova and Toledovic, and maybe even Thon Maker if he can contribute a little bit as a defensive big right away. And there's a lot of internal improvement that we can expect because of the youth of the roster. So I don't think it's inconceivable that that nine game gap could be made up pretty quickly. I would just personally be, I would be floored if they were better than the bulls. I think I might've been on the bucks bandwagon a little bit last season. So maybe this is like recency bias creeping in because they underperformed, but even in Chicago, is it tough to argue that they got better? Joakim Noah didn't contribute last year. So losing him isn't, a huge deal. Are you going to tell me that Ray John Rondo isn't an upgrade over Derrick Rose at this point? I can't tell and you that. That's for sure. I'm not, I honestly am not sure. Well, I, he, I he, would, I'm pretty sure that's an upgrade. Is. Yeah. That, that's an upgrade. And you look, Rondo, three point percentage is still terrible. It was good last year, but it's creeped up in each of the last five seasons. It, he might be an upgrade as a shooter over Rose at this point, especially because he's not going to take, take those stupidly contested shots on drives because he looks to pass first such a flawed team and i don't think their ceiling is much higher than the 42 games they won last season but i think you could certainly argue that this team is as good or better off than it was last season who's the guy that they lost that really hurts maybe mike dunleavy but you have jimmy butler sliding over to the three you needed that shooting so badly and i'm not sure i'm convinced about the rondo fit as much as you guys seem to be because his whole game is predicated upon driving and kicking the shooters yeah which and, rose's game was predicated on driving and missing shots i'd rather have someone <laughs> driving and kicking the shooters yeah but rondo actively looks to pass instead of shoot even in situations where he should shoot and this isn't a roster where the point guard can do that I actually kind of agree with both of you on this. I think Rondo oh. is a better player than Derek Rose. Way to sit on the fence. <laughs> can we just? Well, can, he's a better player, name... but he doesn't fit as he. Can... Like I'm with Adam in that Dwayne Wade and Rajon Rondo don't really make sense together. But just a, I... a head-to-head comparison, I think Rondo's better than Rose. That's well, fair. I... I can accept that, that. That's fine, but the Rondo Wade. One of them, Rondo or Wade, has a better chance of succeeding alongside Jimmy Butler than Derrick Rose did. And if you find that one-two combination and one of Rondo or Wade isn't allowed to play as many minutes, that's fine. Wade's already old, so if it's him that's not really working out, 
he's going to accept a reduced role. He's just doing this for the money and because he apparently hearts so, Chicago. Uh, the compliment isn't there, but there's a better chance of this year's Bulls roster working out than last year's. And I'm looking at the backcourt specifically, and you really shouldn't see too much of a drop in the front court. I guess losing Pau Gasol is a big deal. He, he played such a good uh, season last year. But his defensive value, even when he's blocking all those shots and protecting the rim, is questionable at best. And uh, you get better defense from Robin Lopez at the very least. And you don't need necessarily offense out of your center position anymore. Here's I have a question on the – you basically said one of Rondo or Wade will fit better with Butler than Rose did, which I agree with. Um, but my question is, Fred Hoiberg is a young coach who struggled with stuff like that last year with Rose and Butler, and Rondo's been a pretty volatile personality with coaches his whole career. So I'm not sure we can trust him to be able to sort that out perfectly. I mean, it just goes back to what we've been saying all along. There are so many little things that could go wrong with the makeup of this team. There totally are, and I didn't think we were going to go into the Central Division preview, and I was going to argue so fervently in, in favor. <laughs> I'm glad of you the did, Bulls. though. We needed a little pushback. But here's the other thing, though. Rondo's. I predicted actually that Rondo would make more threes than Jimmy Butler next season, which on the surface is a problem. But if guys are going to slink off him, and he's going to give you league average shooting from there, and he was above average, a mid substantial volume last year, yeah, you will never catch me defending. You will never catch me defending his jumper, but if you're going to get guys who slink off him so that they can crowd Jimmy Butler, maybe he's a guy who can shoot threes at a league average rate who makes him a better complement than Derrick Rose right there. And Dwayne Wade has shown that he can play off guys with cuts and be more of a distributor when he's surrounded by others. So maybe that helps. Again, I don't believe in this team as <laughs> avidly as it sounds right now, but to say that they are worse than the Bucks. At this point, knowing that Monroe is still in Milwaukee, knowing the problems they face with that front court rotation and its limitations, it's really just mind-boggling to me to say so that. So here, here's my other concern with the Bulls is the complete lack of depth on the wings. So you're starting Wade and Butler, and that leaves Denzel Valentine, a rookie, Doug McDermott, who is not a small forward, Tony Snell, who is not very good, and Paul Zipser, who I don't know who that I like, is. I like Paul Zipser. Just throwing that out there because he's from Germany. It, <laughs> could you could you argue though that if we're looking specifically on the wings, this is sort of a lateral move anyway? Jimmy Butler is probably an upgraded small forward over Mike Dunleavy, not as a shooter, but overall. And then you're going to be able to supplant minutes, supplement minutes there with McDermott and Miritich, even though it's not a good fit, because that's what you did last year. It's not perfect, but it's something that the Bulls are used to. So if we're here arguing that they've gotten worse, which we have to do if we're going to say that the Bucks are better than do. them. I think I'm, I'm maintaining that they're moving totally lateral here. That's fine. If they're moving lateral, the, there's no way the Bucks made up a nine-win gap. I just, I can't, If Monroe leaves and that opens up other rotations, I can't see that team improving by 10 wins otherwise. That would shock me. This is one that we're going to have to come back to because <laughs> this is about as yeah, good a debate think, as we've had. I think that we at least agree that those are the two bottom teams in the Central. Yeah. Can we do one more thing on the Bucks before we move on, though? Um, you were the one that was pushing us out of the conversation. <laughs> well, I was trying to move into specifically Michael Carter-Williams and whether or not you guys think – I mean, just Back what do you out. think about him? If he's not the highest paid extendee by the October deadline, I'll be shocked. 
So here's <laughs> here is my thought on Michael Carter Williams. I understand, and I I brought this up earlier in this discussion that we're having right now. Like that big three played a lot better without him. His shooting woes are a terrible thing to have to deal with in today's NBA. Um, but his raw production, like for his career, he averages sixteen six and six per thirty six, and he's still twenty four years old. Like. Is it crazy that I have not given up on him yet? I just don't know what those numbers mean. Like yeah, they're impressive Philly. in a vacuum, but he produced them because he was given complete autonomy in Philadelphia during yeah. his rookie season. And, and that like he hasn't he has never produced wins and I hate the empty stat argument, but if there's any player that I think it applies to, it's the guy who has just been gifted this opportunity to produce raw numbers in spite of his flaws. The, I think the thing true. I will say about him is there will always be a spot for him in the league because of his defensive ceiling. He's never been, if you look at defensive box plus minus, he's never been a negative. Yeah. He played for the 2014-2015 Sixers were okay on defense before he left, but the 2013-2014 Philly team was atrocious on that end of the floor, and he still finished as a net plus there. Well, and really on both ends of the floor. But continue. <laughs> right. Um, just when we say Sixers, assume atrocity on both sides of the ball. <laughs> so I'm impressed with that. The, the thing that he might be able to improve upon, we always talk about guys developing jumpers, and we got into this a little bit in the Atlantic division about Ben Simmons. Michael Carter-Williams, if we're going to be honest, will probably never even be an average shooter. That would be surprising. Can we, can we say that? If he became an average yeah, jump shooter. At this point, I think we could probably say that three years in. But can we – but can we legitimately say that, hey, this guy's going to start shooting better around the rim at some point? He was well, shooting. Okay, hold on, hold on. I want to I rebut that then. Because <laughs> you, a couple minutes ago, talked about Rajon Rondo, who shot at a league average rate from three-point range this last year, actually above average, despite having, what, almost a decade of below average and awful shooting. So and I, don't that, know that we, I don't know that we can ever write a guy off. That's well, true. I'm saying it's going to be surprising. It's just less likely. Yeah. I'm not, I'm oh, not I saying be, I sat here and predicted Rondo. I would be wholeheartedly <laughs> surprised, but if there's a situation that we're going to see him develop into a better shooter, it's going to be because his starting job may may have been taken by Delavadova, and even if it's not, Antetokounmpo is going to be handling the ball so much that he has to improve, and that could be the necessary impetus to rework his jumper entirely. On a different team where he would have the space to develop a jump shot in games, I would agree with you. But he might not get – if you're going to have Parker and Monroe in the front court with Giannis Antetokounmpo attacking inside the arc, the Bucks are super easy to defend. He's not going to – my argument – I'm, I'm mostly saying, just being a contrarian here. That's fine. <laughs> but what I, my point that I was getting to was maybe Michael Carter-Williams doesn't shoot, which will always curtail his value from the perimeter – but could we see this guy maybe finishing a little bit better around the rim? He's been mostly below average there for his career, and that's probably the easiest thing to improve upon in basketball. Sure. So I'm just saying maybe that's how he puts it together. Maybe yeah, it's not that would help. as the off-ball guy that the Bucks probably need him to be at this point. Maybe it's as someone who drives and finishes, and he's a good defender. This is there another are players reason... in the league who Go have ahead. made more out of less. This is another reason I think he makes way more sense as the lead of a backup unit with Milwaukee I just and I, I hope Jason Kidd is willing to do that with both him and Monroe because I, I do think that could be a really good bench with those two um anything else on the Bucks and Bulls or Bulls 
Now let's hear who you have at three. Because I was just about to say two and three is kind of tough too. At least it is for me. But um, I'm probably going to go with Indiana at three. What I agree. I agree, but I disagree that it's a tough decision. All right. Well, let's let's have you jump in on the Pacers first then. Well, I think we kind of have to tackle both of these teams together again because it's not just about one team failing to get better or getting worse so much as what happened in conjunction. I don't like the Pacers' direction here. Like, I know that they were trying to uh, trying to go faster, acquire players who could help them play a lot faster. Yeah. You know, by by trading for Thaddeus Young, by trading for Jeff Teague, I don't by signing out Jefferson, all, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't see how all the pieces work together. Um, especially the Jeff Teague, Monta Ellis backcourt. I know Ellis was actually a positive defender last year. I don't think that happens now that George Hill is no longer there. That is going to be a sieve, and it really worries me. But the reason I have them at three is more because I'm just super high on the Pistons. I love their offseason. Ish Smith finally gives them a legitimate backup backup point guard. Contavious Caldwell-Pope is a great breakout candidate, as is Stanley Johnson in his second year. Uh, getting shooters like John Luer, Henry Ellenson in the front court is awesome. Boban is there now, which means they actually have depth at the center. And who knows if he's going to be as good now that he's not in San Antonio. But there's a lot of reasons to love everything about this depth chart. I'm the closer decision for me. I'm not going to lie to, to Andy's initial point. I'm not convinced that the Pacers are going to be better than the Bulls. I think they will be, but I remain unconvinced. I, I see. I don't know what their actual direction is because they say they want to do this, play fast, space the floor, and then they really build a roster that doesn't necessarily do that. Monta Ellis isn't a great shooter. Miles Turner isn't an average guy from the perimeter. Thaddeus Young can shoot pretty well on long twos, but you're not really carving out enough spacing. And while I see what they're trying to do in the second unit where they're saying, hey, let's throw out Stucky, Miles, Jefferson, really just try and blitz teams, that's not really that impressive of an approach. I wonder if they're still going to be able to be good defensively. I don't know what you're going to get offensively out of Ellis now that the ball is out of his hands even more that you transition Thaddeus Young into this. I'm just not high on them. They have Paul George, whom I love. They have Miles Turner, whom I love. And Teague might, will probably be a lateral move on the offensive end over George Hill, perhaps. So, so I could see them maybe treading water, but I don't see how this team thinks it's better than it was last season and the Pistons just look great their backups are some of the best in the league right now Boban is probably going to get some real minutes off the bench behind Drummond John Lord can play the four or the five and then kind of stretch the floor there I'm interested to see how Smith will do now that he's not a starting point guard the one tweak that they really probably have to make is that Marcus Morris Tobias Harris pairing in the front court doesn't really seem sustainable long term because I'm not of the mind that Morris is as good of a shooter as he was last season and he wasn't even great so you want to see both those guys play some time at the four but you just look at this roster and there seems to be depth everywhere in Detroit I don't know how uh, the Pacers would be better than them my other concern with Indiana is Teague Um, I don't think he's better than George Hill and last year he was a phenomenal spot-up shooter he actually had a 73.1 effective field goal percentage in spot-up situations which is one of the absolute best in the league that was also the first time he'd been really good as a spot-up shooter I don't really trust that that development sticks especially in a new situation 
because he's always been better with the ball in his hands when he can use his quickness to navigate pick and rolls and try and hit floaters in the paint. And that's not going to happen with Paul George and Monta Ellis. And if it does, it mitigates Ellis's value. So here's the other thing is really quick. He's not going to have the space he had in Atlanta either. Everyone could shoot in those lineups sometimes, and that's never going to happen in Indiana. Yeah. Here's why I kind of like the Pacers after uh, hearing what you guys had to say. This is, uh, again, maybe dependent on a coaching decision that may or may not happen. So it's kind of a, um, a rocky position to be standing on. But I really, well, maybe not really, but I do like this lineup if they replace Monte Ellis with like a 3 and D guy. Um, and I'm, I'm not necessarily sure CJ Miles is that, but he makes more sense as the starting two to me. And you put the offense in Monte's hand hands for the second unit um and then the other thing that i like about indiana just in relation to the pistons who i do think will be better than the pacers but the reason i think indiana is kind of within striking distance of them is they have the single best player on either of these teams in paul george and i think that a lot of times star power can drive you to a couple of more wins so like i said i do think indiana probably finishes third i do think detroit finishes second but i i there's a world there where it's competitive in my mind. What kind of odds would you need to get to bet on Drummond being better than Paul George next year? Um, I, I, I don't think there's like really any way that's going to happen. <laughs> Drummond is, a, I mean, he's great at what he does. Um, I think there will always be an issue with free throws. He'll, he'll always be one of the, you know, one or two best rebounders in the league. But um, Paul George is one of those guys who can do everything on both ends of the floor. I just think his all-around ceiling is always going to be higher. I agree. I was just curious. Yeah, and I do think Drummond is really good. And I think in that situation, um, you know, SVG having dealt with a player like him in the past, I think it's perfect for him. Um, And I like the Detroit roster for all the same reasons you guys did. It's just, um, to me, there there are avenues where the Pacers are a pretty good team. Drummond, does anyone else feel this way about him? He's such a phenomenal player, but so much of his defense, his blocks, his steals, and those play he make, those plays he makes, they feel empty. Statistically, he wasn't even that good of a rim protector no. last year. He doesn't seem to have this profound impact on their defense. It's not something that I necessarily say to take away from him. It's just one of those bizarre situations where maybe the stats don't always match what you're seeing, but even what you're seeing on defense, which is supposed to be his real forte, it doesn't even necessarily look that great. He's also not, I mean, they've tried this thing where they pounded into him in the post, like a traditional post player the last couple of years, and I'm not sure that's a great idea either. I would argue that's a terrible idea. <laughs> like, I think last so year, he had 400 and- season. What I was going to say is he's, he had 405 possessions in the post last season. Uh, he scored, 0. He scored like 0.73 points per possession, which is the 27th percentile. So bottom, he shot under 40% on them, which is pretty hard to do. Yeah, bottom quarter of the league as a post player. And that's a ton of post-ups. So I, I think he's super talented, but, I mean, there are some pretty serious flaws. Just to clarify to know how like many post-ups that Drummond got, uh, 405 possessions is more than three teams ran the entire season <laughs> as a whole. That's crazy. 
That's so and it's fourth in the whole league. That was the fourth most post-ups of any player. Man, that's according crazy. to the offensive points added stat that I have on NBA Math. He was a hundred and ten point eight eight points below average last season, which beat only Julius Randle, Alex Len, Emmanuel Mudiay, and Roy Hibbert in the wow. entire league. Is this just on offense? Just on offense. He was a distinct positive on defense, but not enough to even push him into the positives overall. So, um, wow. so under 100 in TPA, if we're estimating total points saved, under 100 for someone of his reputation, or even right around 100, that, that's not good. Didn't Al Horford <laughs> had like 140, and no one recognizes him as an elite defender. No, he, uh, he, he was 84.48 points saved on the defensive end, um, which was solid, but nothing to write home about, and overall was still a below-average player. That doesn't mean he's a below-average player so much as he had below-average contributions, and I think it's because Detroit is forcing him into a role that he's just not ready for. Like, we talk yeah, about the four-out, one-in system all the time, and it's based upon your interior player being able to create for himself and be, being able to score in the post, and as you guys have just said— that's not what's happening, but because of the system they have set up, they still have to force it to him. So I think the numbers aren't really indicative of how good he is, but it does show that he's really not as valuable to the Pistons right now as he will be in the future or as people think he is. That's definitely fair. And the, the other thing would probably be is that are they a true one-in, four-out team yet? Can Tavius Caldwell-Pope still kind of a below-average shooter? Reggie Jackson shot phenomenally last year, but you do have to wonder if he has that respect yet. Marcus Morris isn't going to be viewed as this lethal three-point threat. So even if you're missing on one or two of those guys, that's eliminating space for him in the post to develop. I think you can still call them one, um, even if KCP doesn't develop, because he's such a good cutter that he's still going to set up on the perimeter and draw defensive attention that you can't really cheat off him that much. But you do... There are two other guys on that team, and maybe some would even loop Tobias Harris into this because I know his three-point percentages have been up and down. They may play like a one-and-four-out team, but they would be far easier to defend than that, say, 2008-2009 Magic team. Oh Yeah, I was about to make the same comparison. It's the same style. It's not the same results at all. But it could be. I mean, looking at this roster, like there are a lot of reasons to believe that they could get to that level. So I have another question about uh, Drummond. So, because because hearing those stats and kind of as we were talking about it, you would think he's overall has a negative impact on the team, but when he's on the floor, they outscored opponents by two points per hundred possessions, and when he was off, they they were outscored by their opponents by almost five. So I'm wondering, what is it well, that still makes him a positive player? Is he just playing with the, what's I was I was going to say is it just because he's playing with the starters? The whole time? No, I think it's more about who's replacing him. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're going to keep running the same kind of schemes when he goes to the bench, you don't have a player who can replicate what he does. So does that improve with Boban or I don't know? It might. It might even now that you put, let's see, maybe the Pistons will consider putting John Lohr at the five just for a little bit each game and running close to five out lineups or more of a true one in four out system. Not saying he's a better fit than Drummond, but it will be interesting to see if that statistical impact sticks now that you have two really good backups in yeah. John Lauren. Hold on. Do you think they just stopped playing Baines? 
Oh yeah, Stan Van Gundy already said as much. He oh, was like, "We're that. not even going to be able to resign him after this season." Oh, okay, well that that clears that up for me then. Um, I don't know anything else on the Pacers or the Pistons. No, I think we're good to reveal our number one. <laughs> Wait, can we aside on this podcast? Um, a good friend of Hardwood Knox, Alec Nathan, just hit me. Uh, on the side in Slack and said, I listened to your Atlantic Division pod. Why do you hate my team? <laughs> I guess I guess we had some thoughts and feels about the Sixers. Oh, wait, I did. You guys you were going to be better than yeah, I, didn't you. You were the only one. He's got to be referring specifically to you. I didn't even see that. That's fine. <laughs> he did call me a Gerald Henderson hater today, which I agreed to, and then called Gerald Henderson a dinosaur. Which is probably fair. I will maintain that the Nets right now. have a much lower ceiling than the Sixers. Could you imagine if he's calling me? It's not him. Okay. I apologize for we, my phone interrupting this podcast. We could have thrown him on live. That would have been perfect. Yeah. I think it's I think it's good, though, that they hear these conversations and these phone calls so that they know that it's live and, and we're not planning this. It's, it's all improvis- <laughs> improvisation on our part. That's true. Which you can probably tell other points, too. Completely off the cuff. Um, I'm just saying. All these mishaps are good. So we are... Go ahead. The interesting question with Cleveland, who is obviously our number one team across the board, is probably how many games they can win and whether we think they have any chance of defending their title. I have another question, actually. And another question. (laughs) What the hell is going on with J.R. Smith's contract? I'm just... In these situations, I know... Adam's looking at me. Did he just sign one like five minutes ago or something? No, I just I heard from a couple sources that he's trying to have a no shirt during games provision, <laughs> and they're just fighting back on that. Barack Obama is just staunchly opposed to that happening in the NBA. They brought Obama uh, in on this. That seems like a good thing for him to weigh in on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but seriously, what is J.R. Smith's leverage at this point? I'm not saying the Cavs shouldn't give him 15 mil a year. I'm not saying he shouldn't just sign the $10 million a year offer that all these different reports said might be on the table. But, but what's the situation right now? We're coming up on September. There are only like between – there might be five teams. Might be. It's probably less that can offer J.R. Smith the money he's looking for. Is his leverage really just LeBron's going to be super mad at you if you don't resign me? No, his leverage is that I was really awesome last year and you need me. But then why aren't the Cavs just – this seems stupid because they went through this with Tristan Thompson and now they're going through this with J.R. Smith. And I tend to agree that in this market, looking at some of the other deals everyone got, just so no one thinks that I'm crapping on J.R. Smith, if they give him $15 million a year, even if it was another team outside of Cleveland, I wouldn't blink at that number. But I don't understand the, the politics here. Like what They're $5 million apart, let's say. Either split the difference or one of you has to have clearly more leverage – than the other the Cavs don't have money there clearly isn't a huge market for J.R. Smith so stuff like this is just it's it's puzzling to me it's like the Tristan Thompson situation last year where it probably ends in the Cavs just bending and giving him closer to the number that he wants I do think it's weird too um I'm just thinking let's say he does not come back to Cleveland I think that's probably the less likely outcome but do they miss a beat without him like i i would say that they do yes absolutely absolutely so what would they do in that case just shumpert oh god 
Shumpert wasn't even Mike Dunleavy, I guess. Maybe. Mike Dunleavy is going to be great for them, and maybe, but maybe not in a role leverage. as a starting two. Yeah, that's no. really tough and to can, put him I'm there. I'm not even sure he can keep up with. He had all those back issues last year, right? Can he keep mm-hmm. up with small forwards in today's NBA? I'm just like if you, you look at the rest of their wings, <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. Jordan McRae, Richard Jefferson, James Jones. Mm-hmm. You probably could have justified rolling the dice if you kept Della Vadova, just because you can say at least he doesn't care about his size and will smack players like in the stomach and trip them and throw him on a two. You can't do that with Mike Dunleavy, and Amon Shumpert isn't nearly good enough to justify getting rid of J.R. Smith. And the other thing is, is you're offering J.R. Smith Amon Shumpert money, apparently, if you're going around $10 million a year, and that's kind of insulting. That's true. I didn't really think of it in that perspective. Quick aside on uh, Matthew Della Vadova. Um, I was listening to a podcast, Locked On Fantasy Basketball, today, and they had Bob Rathburn on. He's the play-by-play guy for the Hawks. Uh, he called Della, awesome. <laughs> he called Della Vadova Tanya Harding, which I thought was pretty funny. Wow. <laughs> anyway. So I'm going to turn back to uh, the TPA statistic from NBA Math. Five players on the Cavs were in the green last year as above-average players. LeBron, 484. Kevin Love, 123, Tristan Thompson, 66, J.R. Smith, 64, and Kyrie Irving, 52, which granted is because he missed a lot of the season. It's pretty That's wild it. how much higher LeBron He's was won- than everybody else. But anyway, J.R. Smith is one of their five best players, and it's easy to say. That doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking about your own team, but, you know. He's in, like What he does now is so much more important than it was early in his career too. Like a guy who, who pretty much all he does is catch and shoot. Like that's a really important part of an well, offense, totally especially Cleveland. He's accepted his role now. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest difference. All of a sudden you're seeing possession of possession commitment on defense, which is huge. And a guy who's not going to take all the heat check shots, he's going to take the right ones with a couple heat checks mixed in. Yeah. <laughs> Every shot he takes kind of looks like a heat check too. It's just kind of his normal well, form. But go ahead, Dan. I- Adam, what were Smith's defensive numbers last year? Was he in the positives? I'm seeing he was in the negatives for defensive box plus minus, but he, he was had, just barely negative. Yeah, he was. So, right. So this is what I'm getting at. If we're looking at the box plus minuses of anyone on the Cavs who finished with an above average offensive box plus minus, J.R. Smith's defensive score was the third best. The caveat here is... Um, Oh, it was the fourth best. Excuse me, I'm looking at it wrong. So that's less impressive. And Kevin Love is also the third best, which I guess just (laughs) nullifies the stat completely. So never (laughs) mind. I've heard some people try to argue that Kevin Love's a lot better defensively than he's given credit for. Are they? Did they only watch that one play on Stephen Curry? (laughs) Maybe that was it. But it just like in general, he didn't really impact the team defense negatively that much maybe adam has I, a number that could back that up or not but i'll take kevin love's side here i can do that um he's by no means an impact defender but i think that in cleveland he actually understood the schemes and he was willing to accept his role more and he wasn't a liability which yeah, that's, is a I think that step was... in the right direction for minnesota if he's making a couple positive plays a game and avoiding the glaring missteps that's beneficial i think that was the gist of the argument was like no, he's not a great defender, but he's also not really hurting them. It's also probably easier to stash someone like him, these bad defensive power forwards, um, because you can find these guys normally in the post who aren't good at doing anything. Or even if you throw him at the five, where he was probably worse defensively, he's on guys who are slower than him 
for the most part and, and easy enough to cover. So maybe it's even not so much as he learned the defensive schemes properly that they were able to stash him in certain lineups and against most of the teams. And yes, maybe he just was a little bit better than people gave him credit for. Regardless of where you're being stashed or with whom you're being stashed, I think it's a little bit understated just how hard it is to avoid being a liability in the NBA. Yeah. Like it's legitimately hard because schemes are so sophisticated that if you are bad at your defensive job, you're going to get targeted on almost every possession. They're going to find a way to isolate you on a guard. They're going to find a way to attack you in the post. So for him to not be a liability, that's a huge step. I want to talk oh, about him on the great. other end too. Um, does his role change at all this season? I'm sure you guys have heard this sort of pet theory that's been floating around all summer that LeBron will kind of take a backseat to Kyrie. Um, I, I don't know whether or not I believe in that, but I, I would think at the same time that might open up more opportunities for love. I don't know. I, or has he just settled into being a 16 and 10 guy now? That, that, that It's pretty much a 16 and 10, 6, 10 shooting guard because he doesn't do much around the rim anymore either. If LeBron is taking a backseat, is it too late for me to pick Detroit at number one? <laughs> well, I think I would I would hope the people that are floating that aren't saying, I mean, he's still going to be LeBron. But. Yeah. The, I can't see if he was going to take a step back or maybe just defer on offense more. Is this season really the season? Because my question that I was going to ask, this upcoming year, yes or no, is it LeBron's best chance at getting his fifth MVP award that he's probably going to get? perception of him has never been better the Warriors you have three guys in green Durant and Curry who are going to take votes away from each other and who people are going to look down upon Chris Paul and Blake Griffin will always take votes away from one another I am nowhere of the mind that lover Irving will steal many votes from LeBron James ever there are legitimate guys like maybe Russell Westbrook uh Kawhi Leonard who, who will get a lion's share of consideration as well but will the te- will their teams be good enough dominant enough to put them in that conversation. I, for one, think Kawhi Leonard's going to win MVP, but I'm just saying if LeBron was going to take a back seat, I just can't see it being this year because he's talked about being the greatest. He's even mentioned before, I think it was this past season, about how he already should have at least one or two more MVPs. This is someone in my mind who, who looks at this opportunity and is going to be like, man, I could really be the MVP again this year and is just going to try and go off. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. How many MVPs does Michael Jordan have? Is six, six, I think. I'm looking it up as we speak. Um, I'm with you, Dan, especially on, I mean, I think the odds on favorite right now is Russell Westbrook, like, based Jordan on Jordan has Vegas. five, by the way. Kareem got five. six. But, um, There's no way Westbrook is going to win. That's what I was going to say. Even if he does, he'll be, like, outside the top good. five. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I was getting at. Like, I don't think they'll finish high enough for him to, because I think there's some kind of crazy number, like, a vast majority of MVPs in league history have finished top two in their conference. Right. It's so, like, it's probably, I've looked this up once, I'd hazard it's it. It's not since 1982 that they've finished outside the top three or something. Right, so and I think can, like 95% of the time they have been in the top three or top two overall. If this, if the MVP case, and this is, a, I guess, a deviation, but if the MVP criteria that's kind of unofficial is going to change, might this be the year for it to change? Just because you have a guy like Westbrook you have Harden in Houston who doesn't have a ton of help. You have Anthony Davis in New Orleans who is clearly the lone alpha there. You have Kawhi in San Antonio, still has Aldridge and everyone, so maybe he's a bad example. But in this age of super teams where people seem to be a little bit spiteful, resentful that these guys are joining forces, 
does perception all of a sudden shift toward a guy like Russell Westbrook because he's alone? A guy like Anthony Davis because he's alone? If Westbrook um, averages I would, like, but, if he averages like 32, 10, and 9, I think he will very much be in the conversation. Even if the Thunder are like ninth in the West, I think he'll get consideration. Just because I mean, of the craziness of the Thunder. are ultimately like beholden tra- to like tradition That's and perception. That's true too. Right? Yeah. Like if you look at baseball voting, the steroids guys are never going to get in because everybody wants to keep them out. And I think it's going to work the same way with the awards voting. Like, yeah, Westbrook might be in consideration, but all that's going to get talked about is if his team isn't in contention, he shouldn't win. There are going to be enough people that vote against him for that sole reason. I would bet my life savings on LeBron winning MVP this year, which granted is like nothing after the wedding and sports betting isn't (laughs) legal. So I wouldn't actually do that if anyone's listening. But yeah, I mean, well, I'm I, holding I think you to it. Clear aren't, you, paper. aren't you coming to us from Malta today? So it's technically legal. <laughs> Again, I don't think it will change, but is there there like there's no doubt to it now? You you couldn't see like, hey, maybe the, because I was shocked when the odds came out a few weeks ago, and they've probably changed since. Westbrook was the favorite, which is a terrible bet in my mind. But does that maybe like is all of this stuff? going to factor in and maybe there's a chance finally because there are other people who are in a slightly similar situation like Harden, like oh, Davis. The Anything funny thing is to me is I don't think I don't think people are looking at the Cavs as like they're a super team anymore. Like even though the way because they were what, assembled yeah. yeah, because of everything that's happened since then and Durant has just completely taken the brunt of that argument away from the Cavaliers. I don't think they're viewed as a super team. I think it's LeBron and a supporting cast that has an up-and-coming player like Kyrie Irving and a, a player like Love who is an all-star based on his reputation and maybe not his production. I, I don't think they're viewed as a big three right now. That would, I guess, then to prop up the argument that LeBron is probably going to go nuts this year because <laughs> this this will be his best chance at winning a fifth MVP. Until next year, yeah. Well, but again, even then, times will have softened. Like, I mean, people aren't going to other- look back. People aren't going to look back on the Warriors as harshly as they are now. Yeah, like the, the perception will change a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, it, the whole thing with this argument is that we could have it every year. Like LeBron is always the best player; he should be the favorite every yeah, year. That's true. Steph Curry just had a better season than him, but going into it, LeBron was the best player. It's it's the Jordan thing, you know, how Jordan should have won every year that he was I'm, That's what I'm saying. That's the other thing, though, is that there are going to be these other candidates that crop up that are – this is LeBron's best chance because we're factoring all that voters fatigue in. Factoring all that. He hasn't been the MVP uh, for three years now. That's going to help him. And if he wins it this year, it'll be harder for him to win it the year after. All that stuff, the narratives, unfortunately, factor in. That, that perception factors in. This is this might be actually I'm gonna say right now this is his best chance at winning a fifth yeah. MVP award. If he doesn't get it this year, I'm gonna say that he's not gonna get another MVP award. Let I would be legit. Well, the only reason he's gonna lose is when Curry knocks down a thousand threes. Next season. <laughs> Let me float one more idea or one more point on this. Um, back to this idea that he could take a back seat. What if he just takes like a slight back seat as a scorer and kind of like passes more averages nine or ten assists i feel like that would almost lock it up for him because he would do something in a way that's different like what if he averages 24 points nine assists and seven rebounds it's again it's possible but is that him taking 
a step back. Like, well, here's as my a thing. scorer is what I'm saying. Like if he if he gives Kyrie and Kevin Love a couple more scoring opportunities a game, so Kyrie's suddenly averaging like 23 or 24, and Love's averaging like 18. This I just <laughs> for LeBron to for me to view LeBron as someone who took a step back as a scorer would be Irving scoring more points than him per game, pretty much. Like unless you're going to see LeBron drop down to, if we're really going to hedge on like one or two points per game, that could be the, just the result of playing time, uh, fewer possessions, or I'm just so all those different things. But I I don't think if LeBron is ever going to pass the torch in Cleveland as a scorer. And he probably will. I, I would be a little bit surprised if it was this year. I, I guess he came pretty close at points during the playoffs because Kyrie Irving scored almost as much as him per game. But even then, even when they were so close, it still just felt like LeBron was yeah. in complete control as he a scorer. He all five statistical categories in the finals, right? Wasn't that he's going to have to leave? He's <laughs> going to have to lead the Cavaliers in blocks next season after they lost Mozgov. They didn't replace Mozgov with a shot blocker. Yeah, Maybe Thompson wild. will get more than him, but probably not. So uh, let's circle back to Adam's original question um, before Dan had his burning J.R. Smith question. Um, I think it was win totals, right, Adam? Like how high do we think they Yeah, it was it? win total and whether we like them to, to defend their title. Um, this is a weird one for them because I think it depends on how much – they push down the gas pedal over the course of the season, like how much rest they give LeBron. Um, but I think if they wanted to, they could get mid sixties. Um, but if, I mean, if they want to kind of take it easy and wait for the playoffs, then I'm, I'm thinking the absolute basement for them is probably still high fifties. I think 60, I don't want to use the word floor, but it just seems like they're going to get to that 60 mark. You could see them winning between five and 10 more games, five and eight more games, but 60 seems like a safe bet because they didn't rest LeBron that much last year. He missed six games. I think even the year before, we talked about a rest and relaxation program, but he was legitimately injured. Unless he's injured, it's tough for me to maybe imagine them um, resting him, but maybe that's also because the, the race for first place in the East was close for a lot of points this year uh i'm gonna go with 60 around the 60 to 62 area with the caveat that if they play lebron if irving stays healthy if they're not going to rest these guys they'll go for 65 plus pretty easily i think the concept of the title hangover is really interesting here so if you look two years ago when the warriors won their title they were questioned all offseason did they get lucky with their path through the playoffs was Curry really legitimately a superstar to that level. They felt they had something to prove. They came back and they won 73 games, had their historic season and all that. This feels totally different because no one's questioning the legitimacy of this title. They came back from that 3-1 to deficit. They got the monkey off their back winning a title for Cleveland. I don't think there's going to be nearly as much motivation this year. Because of that, I can see them resting players more. I can see them playing with less urgency in an Eastern Conference where I really don't think that there is a challenger for that number one seed outside of maybe the Celtics. So I'm going to say 59 just to make a point that I don't think that they are driven to get to 60. Statistically, reigning championship, uh, reigning champions don't win as many games the next season either. We all predicted a win increase, which says a lot about the East and also LeBron. But is there a chance... And if so, is there is it legitimate? Is it large, small that they are worse just because of all those factors? 
I would say the only I mean, way they get worse is if they just totally coast, knowing that all they care about is the finals. Because they can coast at the top seed. Uh, I'm with you guys. I don't think there's I mean, a legitimate beyond challenge. that, this team isn't deep. Like, yeah, that's the other thing. We, I mean, they're backups. Kay Felder and Mo Williams at point guard. Shumpert, James Jones at shooting guard. Mike Dunleavy and Richard Jefferson at the forwards. Shannon Fry and Chris Anderson in the front court. That's not a deep team. One injury, and you could have a little bit of trouble maintaining that 65-win pace. Isn't the, and this would probably be the case almost no matter what, but what is the issue with their depth there? You're, you're not going to have depth behind LeBron. The bigger problem is probably point guard now because, like you said, it's Mo Williams and Kay Felder. That's a legitimate concern, but I don't have an issue with that. And short of losing LeBron, which is unfair because you can say that, you, you, what, what if the Spurs no, lose five? No, you're, you're <laughs> right. I mean, if J.R. Smith is back, the wings aren't that concerning. It's more about point guard and the bigs. I mean, your only true power forwards and centers here are Kevin Love, Shannon Fry, Tristan Thompson, and Chris Anderson. And that doesn't really do that much for me. I'm totally – I'm on board with it. Kevin Love, Thompson. Uh, it's, a, it's a minor gripe. But we're talking about whether a team can win 60 games or 65 do you think the Cavs will feel Delavidova's absence at all? I think that's probably an understated question at this yeah, point. Mo, Mo Williams is like how many like I, K Felder? Is he actually, as I use, like eight times? Do you think he'll crack the rotation, or or I is hope it so. just... he's so much fun? I want to see a K Felder Kyrie Irving backcourt <laughs> at some point during the season. So do twenty nine other teams in the NBA? <laughs> <laughs> um, do we think they? I don't know. Let's phrase it as: Do you think they will repeat? Because I think it, I, I definitely think they can. I because I'm I've you, discounted LeBron last year, and you have to say they it's possible. Yeah. Just because they're probably going to make it out of the Eastern Conference when it's such a formality that you reach the NBA Finals. Yeah. That's more than seventy five percent of the battle. I don't think they repeat just because they're still to me are three teams out west, even if one of them is not the Warriors. You have the Spurs, you have the Clippers that could feasibly beat the Cavaliers in a seven-game series. That's how I. F- that's that's pretty much exactly how I feel. Yeah. I'm on board with that as well. The Western Conference. <laughs> that might be the only thing we've agreed all three of us upon <laughs> the entire podcast. Hey, that made it more fun. That's for sure. Can we go back to why you guys think the Bulls are going to win less than 72 games? <laughs> um, Maybe because there are only 82 in a season. <laughs> Or less than 42. So our rankings, uh, to put a bow on this, are Cavaliers at one. Consensus was Pistons at two, right? Yeah. Yep. Consensus Pacers was at Pacers three. at three. Yep. And, and then who knows? Had, and two of you had... It, it, so if we're just going by the votes, you both have Bucks, uh, Bucks, Bucks. then Bulls. Yeah. Yep. And I have Bulls, then Bucks. All right. But I think that this is, um, like we said many times with the Eastern Conference last year, and like I think we've said a couple times this year, I think the division or the the Central Division is kind of similar where there's one team at the top and then it's kind of a mess after that. Like all all four of those teams could be jumbled in pretty much any order, and I wouldn't be surprised. You seem to be a lot higher on the Bucs than I am because I would be legitimately surprised if they were anywhere. You I know like a division's going to be bonkers this year? Southeast. I can't wait till we do that preview. That's going to be That's nuts. Next. Agreed. But since we're talking about different divisions <laughs> other than the Central Division, 
that must mean it's time for Yes, that's right. It is time for another edition of Burns My Bacon. And once again, for the second consecutive episode, we are going to be handing our bacon stick to Mr. Adam Frommel. And for the second consecutive episode, I'm going to be venting about something related to the, to the Olympics. Uh, this time, it is USA Basketball Chairman Jerry Colangelo, who had some interesting quotes for the media after Team USA won their third straight gold medal. I'm just going to read this to you. Um, no context provided at first. Basketball is the number two sport in the world, but we just need to see these other countries get their acts together and become more competitive. Then he would go on to say, I'm not going to be making excuses for anyone about our dominance. Someone said to me after the game, one of the officials said to me, you know, next time you play, you ought to play with four. And I said, no, maybe the other teams better get their act together and compete. And that's the end of the quote. You don't really need any context because it's so, like, blindingly obvious what he's saying. It's, yay, America, we're so much better than everybody else in the sport that we created and the only real major league that every single great player plays in happens to be in the country. And we have the collegiate system that produces most of the players who compete on that stage. It just, it rubs me the wrong way. Um, I think it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. It is not really the look that Team USA wants to go for after after you win another medal. It's supposed to be you know this this gathering of countries getting together and competing um, in harmony, and that is not the way to foster that type of relationship. Um, and you know, Colangelo is also involved with the Philadelphia 76ers. This feels like a quote that a lot of the other teams in the league could say about his organization um, at the moment. So. I think it's time for him to look in the mirror and realize that maybe you don't want to act quite so elitist here. Yeah, well, while everything he said was like factually, I mean, it's true. We are the dominant team. It's just such a weird like PR gaffe to me. I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. It just doesn't really serve any purpose. And I agree with you. Obviously, we're better set up to dominate basketball than any other country as evidenced by the fact that we do and have. I mean, how does he want these other teams to compete? Like, what is the plan there? You know, like engineer players in a lab? Wait for him to catch up 50 years from now? I don't know. It's so bizarre that he would say this after, for the most part, maybe they got a little bit chippy when they started not winning by as much, but that might actually be a good thing. The Team USA and Coach K, they were really complimentary of all the teams at the beginning to make it seem though, hey, we're not looking down upon them. You could clearly tell they were playing a quarter and half speed sometimes, but at least what they were saying wasn't reflective of that, and they were being complimentary. And you have Jerry Colangelo come out and basically crap all over the rest of the world. Uh, it's just like, uh, he, here's my here's my real question: If just randomly, let's say Serbia started giving out nine-figure contracts to anyone that would move, like the NBA has, would Serbia be the hotbed? For NBA talent. Uh, or, you know, then, like if Serbia had a similar population to the United States. That's what I was going to say. If any other league outside of the NBA tried to do that, I feel like it would collapse so fast that it would just be a flash in the pan. Like if they were able yeah. to generate a little bit of interest, it, would, it wouldn't last long enough. Maybe. I'm just saying it would. Okay, in a vacuum, you put together a league that can pay out at that rate regardless of profit or loss at the end of the year for a century, for a, a half a century. 
would there be an uptick in the talent level of Serbian basketball? Would we have guys from the States who are household names or close to big names go over there to get those paychecks? I'm just Yeah, like I don't even know if that would do it. Maybe it wouldn't. I'm just saying it seems like such an ignorant thing to say so, because we are set up to be the best basketball team in the world. This isn't completely related, but I, I think I tweeted this like during group play maybe. Um, so two or three weeks ago, there's a bunch of Olympic events that have like more than one format. Like there's diving and then there's synchronized diving or there's team gymnastics or, uh, the, the different events within gymnastics. Um, wouldn't it be competitive if there was like a two on two tournament or a three on three tournament? If you took like Spain's best two players, I, I, I still think USA would be the favorite either but. way. Yeah, I mean, like, Harrison Barnes is probably the only player on the Team USA roster who wouldn't be the best player on, like, any other country. Which is, I mean, yeah, it's crazy to think about. But Maybe I, DeMar DeRozan falls into that category, too. But, like, yeah, almost everybody else. We got to get you and DeMar DeRozan in a room, Adam. I think <laughs> I was low, I think I was lower on him at one point than you, and you've just, like, cratered over the last two or three years. It's his, it's his uh, infatuation I, I with Norman Powell. Re- I, yeah, probably. I specifically remember Adam telling me I was too low on DeMar DeRozan one year, and here we are two or three years later. Adam's like, would DeMar DeRozan even be the best player on the Canadian team that wasn't even in the Olympics? The answer to that is yeah. probably... Probably no. No. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I think this is a good time to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, on that note... We will wrap it up. Um, I would just like to say I officially think Adam is underrating DeMar DeRozan. And right. I never thought I'd say that. I'm about not him. even rating DeMar DeRozan. <laughs> How can you say whether it's under or over? You're putting him in the same class as Harrison Barnes, which is just me. No, no. I'm saying that he might not be the best player on every other team. Is DeMar DeRozan better than Pau Gasol? Oh, every – like I thought you were legitimately saying there is no team in the world – that was in the best team on Nigeria. Yeah. Okay. Just, I just want to clarify that. Then. I'm glad we cleared that up for you. Um, but you've still cratered on his value over the last two to three not years. Not denying that. Okay. Which is understandable if you look at the numbers. But um, anyway, that is the end of this Central Division preview from the Hardwood Knox crew. Like we kind of mentioned earlier, we'll come back with the Southeast Division um, sometime in the next few days. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Adam is at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L-09. Dan is at Dan Favalli, uh, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The whole show is at Hardwood Knox. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, follow on Stitcher. Follow on Blog Talk Radio. Give us ratings. We love all that. Really helps, you know, place us higher on the list for those websites. And as always, we leave you with a shout-out to your Miami Heat Backup point guard, Bino Udri. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today.
$30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.